Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Uddang dhammang sangang namasami So tonight is the uh, Night of Marga Puja. Puja is a kind of uh, celebration, a sense of offering. And uh, celebration itself in, in Buddhism is generally through offering things, you know, rather than grabbing things. <laughs> yeah. Puja, to honor, to honor something, a sense of honoring, offering respect. So. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's a feature of, uh, you know, B- Buddhist life, and uh, certainly all, all religious life have these. Is this kind of sense of occasions when there's honouring or respecting, or it's done on, in a group, and there's a kind of celebration experience that occurs in that, you know, sense of oh, this is where we all are, right? Yay! Uh, it's uh, fairly. Quiet, not always that quiet actually. Some some Buddhist pujas can be quite um, jubilant. Uh, have drumming pujas in in Sri Lanka, or lay people do the drumming and bashing away on cymbals and oboes and gongs and things and elephants and the monks are kind of sitting there being impassive with it all. But uh, uh, you know, so a sense of everybody's making some offering and honouring in however they can. Of course the the uh, monastics' role in that is to offer their their presence and their their uh, calm or their clarity. Mm. You know, still to recognise that is an offering. Um, uh, and so, anyway, it's nice to see people have made it here tonight. So some of you only actually had to come out of your rooms, but a few people have forged across the snowy tracts of southern England to. Join us this evening. Margabuja is a bit of a challenge. It's never that great a festival because of the, the cold we can experience. But it refers to this um, occasion when you know, 1250 arahants got together, they all decided they'd go and see the Buddha. And they came to where the Buddha was living in uh, Veluvan, I believe, the bamboo grove. This was really early in the dispensation when there weren't any monasteries. They used to live in particular parks or groves, and the bamboo grove was the, the first one, the favoured one, that the King Bimbisara gave to the Buddha. So it's big enough for them all to get in. Um, the big bamboo is still there, big, big enormous um, clumps of gigantic bamboo there. So they all gathered there. Um, a nice warm day, I'd imagine in India in February. And so what do they, you know, what do they want to do that for? It's Arahants. <laughs> why <don't> bother? <laughs> you know. And then what did the Buddha say to them? What did the enlightened being say to these Arahants who had already completed the path, so what do they need a teaching for? And he said to them, patient endurance are supreme religious practices, the most excellent is Nibbana, say the Buddhas. Yeah. Surely one is not gone forth who hurts another. Well, this is hardly subtle, is it? You know, presumably Arahants weren't beating each other up. One is not called a recluse if one oppresses others. Refraining from any kind of evil, perfecting that which is purely good, the purifying of one's own heart, these are the teachings of all the Buddhas without insulting or harming anyone. So we are again. Being restrained according to the Patimokha, knowing moderation in one's food and dwelling in solitude, intent upon refinement of the heart and mind. These are the teachings of the Buddhas. So this is sound stuff, but one would think it's probably not a revelation to these enlightened beings that they shouldn't abuse and harm other people. (laughs) And they should... uh, uh, be restrained according to party mode and no moderation in one's food. 
what essentially is, is, seems to be happening here is it's a kind of celebration of like, hey, these are the standards we all agree upon, right? Isn't this good? We can actually um, express in a way of form something that is extremely difficult to express, you know, realization. What? What's that? What's that? Is it good? Well, yeah, it's good. You know, where is it? Well, you can't really say that. <laughs> what do you get? Well, you can't really say that. And Nibbana is extremely difficult to define. But there is a, a, a passage in the suttas, I think in the in Gutra, where the Buddha says, well, if you want to know what Nibbana is, he says to some Brahmin, as something that's visible, manifest, he says it's, uh, it's non non uh, greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. <laughs> when you when you act, think, and speak in that way, someone who does that completely—that's nibbana. That's the way you can see it. Yeah. So he's saying this, this, it, this uh, very difficult to conceive um, um, realization can ma- can be expressed in in ways of form, yeah. in ways of, of conventional behavior, right? Um, knowing moderation in one's food, this is nibbana. <laughs> uh, being being content with a simple place to to sit and lie down, this is this is a manifestation of nibbana. Uh, not harming, reviling, abusing, insulting other people, this is a manifestation of nibbana. Um, you know, and so this is, I think, this is really one, and that they could get together and state this as a sense of. This is what we stand for. This is our anthem. This is our collective, uh, uh, you know, a collective thing. A patimoka literally means that which binds us together, thoroughly binds us together. This is where we're together on. And I think there's something very significant about that, that, that some sense of group or communality or we consciousness, if you like, is being expressed here which is not about individuals or even individual relationships. We all belong to something that's, that's bigger you know, than any particular one person. Hmm. We consciousness, you know. And somehow that this is also an attribute of enlightened beings that they can uh, relate to that as, if you want to see what Nibbana is like as a manifestation in form, then it's this sense of a we consciousness, a group, an ability to be a we, you know, which 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 stands on on values that there's no no hurting, no abusing anyone, you know, it doesn't say nice people, but not abusing or harming or reviling anyone <laughs> at all ever. <laughs> you know that that actually, you know, when you look in your own mind, you know, it's, that's quite a. Thing, isn't it? You, you know, little bits. Some people's action, yeah, grumble, 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 power trip, things of this nature. Some really quite nasty people on the planet. So, you know, some sense of, um, you know, perhaps one might say recognizing beings suffer, beings are beings are oppressed with karma. Um, you know. Uh, there's no gain in just in harming them, reviling or insulting them. Isn't going to actually get them out of that. Yeah. So you know, one has actually really, really had quite a thorough, uh, you know, penetration of of self-view and personality and behaviour, where it doesn't actually trigger off these responses where we feel angry or condemning or. Um, you know, about anybody's actions. You just say, oh, that's, you know, mm. how unfortunate, you know. They, will, they suffer unfortunate consequences because of that. It's also um, significant to me that, that these Arahants all felt this interest in getting together, going to see the Buddha, and it's something that um, is also a very common part of the Buddhist tradition that to you know, come together and just sort of feel or, or manifest the we-ness. 
There's a kind of a celebration. As expressing or really participating, you know, and with living out the, in a formal, in a way of form, in a way of uh, relationship, uh, some expression of Nibbāna, which is the, 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 the gathering together is not about, you know, um, strong personal relationships or um, anything of this nature. It's just, you know, there can be that gathering together which is, has no, it just encompasses beings. So certainly it's the case when you find um, these pujas, big pujas in, in uh, Asian countries, yeah, which can feel quite overwhelming because you never really get to meet anybody. You know, because there's so many people, it's just too much. Uh, but it doesn't seem to de- de- um, detract from the occasion, in fact, because people are quite comfortable with relating to, hey, this is the group, I don't have to know who's in it. You know? <laughs> there may be a few people, oh, you know, so-and-so you respect, or this being or the other, but somehow it's bigger than any individual within it. It's just people are quite happy and feel a need to experience that sense of just belonging to something big that they respect and feel trust in. I think this is very significant because it, it, I think it's a piece that, that we find um, doesn't come easy to us. Mm. We don't have we consciousness is, is uh, afflicted. Mm. So high, uh, Western consciousness is highly individual it's competitive, it's uh, um, who's best, or live on your own, or be an individual, emphasize the individual. Um, we often live in small families or just on our own, um, neighborhoods maybe, but probably, you know, I think every neighborhood I lived in, you maybe know if you had a house with a street with 25 houses in it, you might know people in two of those, maybe. Yeah. You might see your cousins once a year. That was about it, really. And uh, a lot of those people in the house you never spoke to at all. Right on your street, right next door. A nod, maybe. And some of them you definitely felt some aversion to. (laughs) Your fear or mistrust. Nobody ever got together. The street never got together. And you see the, you look in a traditional Asian village, it's, it's completely the opposite. You know, everybody's outside the house, and there's the well, and there's the market, and there's the street, and there's the extended family, and there's the fields, and everybody's kind of slopping around together in these kind of, you know, patterns. And there's a sense of, this is where we are, and we belong to this. It doesn't even need to be affirmed, really, it's just that people feel comfortable with that, rather than nervously trying to find out you know, see themselves as separate from it. Which is particularly the, uh, uh, an energy that I've, I'm aware of, the sense of the dropout, being out of a group, being individual, being the lead or the hero or the one who doesn't care, you know, somehow separate from other people. is more the, the outlaw, the outsider. Can, can recognize that sense. Now, this maybe isn't just a kind of piece of social dynamics because I think it does, it refers to <clears throat> something that's very uh, innate in all of us. And it, it actually ref- the whole, refers to aspects of what we develop in meditation as the place for the realization of Nibbana. So in terms of just personal development, you know, when, when a f- person grows beyond the age of about five or six, they start to have to find out, who am I? And, and this is, they, say, they say that the age of seven is the earliest you can get uh, enlightened, awakened in, 
because it's then you're able to really see yourself as separate from what's going on and make moral choices. When you're still a tot, you just, you just are in whatever's going on. You get a fear and you just scream and you feel greed and you just grab and you want and you do and, you, and there's, no, there's no boundaries. There's no sense of being able to say, well, wait a minute, check this or forget that or let's go for this or this isn't good. There's no sense of being able to separate from these very primary energies that the consciousness is experiencing. We're just kind of washed over by it all. And that's the uterine experience. You know, you're just kind of in it. But you can't separate. So, you know. But as you grow up, you start to be able to separate. And the idea is to actually separate in a skillful way, like this isn't good, or this is harmful, or this is in a moral sense, rather than just a separation based upon um, greed or fear. You know, this, this does me no good. And, uh, yeah, so one has to know oneself. And one begins to also have to have the sense of having definite motivation, desires, aspirations, inclinations. Uh, I, I want to go this way. I want to learn something. I want to learn this. I want to, I want to develop that. I want to stop being like this. I want to make it like this. So definite motivations. So is that volition. And um, <clears throat> one learns to also how to get some sense of how you relate to other people. <clears throat> you know, how we, we, we all do this. We all kind of feel some sense of I'm okay with the people I'm around. Mm-hmm. Am I not just okay, but actually enjoying them or not in conflict with them? Mm-hmm. So you may achieve that by just ignoring everybody, you know, or selecting particular times when we meet people, so we can experience the okay sense because we meet on in okay places, like we go down the pub or we, or we, you know, whatever. You know, we have a cup of tea together, so there's a sense of yeah, we're all right in this particular place. So you get that sense of yeah, we're fine, and do that. You can do it through specific things. So this is where people develop, isn't it? And in <clears throat> in this um, sangha life, there's whatever one's de- whatever one's developing in a kind of what might say a purely internal sphere. This is also happening. You know, it's often something that we don't deliberately decide to do. It's just something that our system starts to do. It does it kind of involuntarily. You start to feel, you know, well, am I okay with myself? Have I got my stuff together? Am I, you know? Am I all right here? Can I separate myself from the just the flow of experience and stand up for myself? You know, feel myself, uh, and it may be something we're not even that conscious of doing. Yeah. And then what we may be more conscious of is: Can I fulfil certain aspirations or wishes? Can I learn to sit, you know, without pain? Um, can I learn my chanting or? Um, learn the, the training rules? Uh, can I come to a place where uh, I'm no longer overwhelmed with fear or aversion or tension? You know, so we have definite motivations. And then also, well, how am I in this, in this whole setup? Am I respected? Do I have a place here? Am I welcome? Am I as good as the next, as it were? You know? So we, we get that kind of sense is going on. It often takes a few years for that to really happen. And in this, this um, the Buddha kind of places this, is saying, well, you know, if you want to know, because you, in the cultivation, you, those those particular forms, like who am I, my motivations, and what do I what do I belong to, how to relate to others, are placed in particular ways. You know, so who are you? You're a summoner. You've got that. You're a summoner. So this is what the Buddha says, you know, one is a gone forth being. If you want to know who you are, then, that, then you, you kind of gravitate around that. You know. So you've got that as your core. Yeah. Well, I'm a follower of the Buddha or something of this nature. It goes for refuge. And that's the significance of that kind of, of, a, of a vowel. It gives you a kind of 
a root or a, a con or a basis or a center. This is what I this is what I am. You know? And then around that, you can then start to see well, you know, what kind of motivations and, and wishes and inclinations actually support that. You know, what do I need to enhance? What do I need to give up? What do I need to learn? And so forth. So, and we generally, you know, we we can we can do that. We can try to do that. It's part of our practice. This is what we do. Tricky bit is is in terms of how we feel with other other people, because that isn't something you can necessarily do. You know, you can put out all the all the you know the signals, and yet what you get back isn't necessarily always, hey, well, you belong here, or you're fine, or whatever. Some of it's, well, don't bother me now, or <laughs> things of this nature. And this, so this, this, this wee bit is, is the most difficult bit, but actually that's the bit that makes the, the rest of it possible. You only really know you're a, 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 a gone-forth person. You have other people saying, well, yeah, you know, you, you're, you're doing it, you're all right, yeah, I see you there, yeah. You can't just keep doing it yourself because you could be deluded. But some sense which has to come back to you. You have to be seen in it. Um, and then you get the feeling of, oh yeah, this isn't, just the, this isn't just my opinion, but actually I'm being seen in that way, regarded in that way. And this is what you know, any person needs in their life. This is why we, people form relationships and uh, families. and So this actually seen and regarded and related to in a particular way that, that helps them to establish this sense of, yeah, this is where I am, this is what I'm about. Because if we don't, if that isn't happening that way, there's a continual um, superego trip, isn't it? Where you, 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 you kind of keep proclaiming yourself, to keep because you know, proving it or making it or asserting it. You get this kind of neurotic uh, achievement thing. And you also, you only know really whether whether your motivations are in line if if, if there's some recognition of it. Like, yeah, you're doing fine, you're doing well, or that's good, or, you know. So, you know, this is the kind of Perhaps we realise being doesn't completely realise doesn't has actually, you know, come through this and finally doesn't need this. But for people on the path, these are all aspects of what path is about, development's about. So in this particular teaching, the Buddha's given some very you know, finite, fairly simple, easy to understand definition of identity. You know, you're someone who doesn't do this, this is what you stand for, and a sense of what the motivations are, to keep it simple, to learn to, to uh, uh, give up all unskillful things, to recognize them and put them aside, to seek the higher mind, and... Uh, you know, and then this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So once you're in this, you're in this big kind of Buddha family, if you like, or Buddha entity. This is what we belong to. This is what we're part of. So every time one kind of cultivates something of that nature, there's a sense of, yeah, this is right, this is um, skillful. So it's even... You know, one of the reasons for keeping the eight precepts in the suttas is that the person who keeps the eight precepts can ref- is asked to reflect, oh, this is the way that the uh, enlightened beings live. They live like this. You know, so you know, what's that mean, really? You know, apart from just the moral standard, it means you, you sense a connection to something bigger than just your own um, your own you know, entityhood, your own individuality, you're in something, 
And that should be something that gives one a feeling of comfort and support and relaxation, indeed. Without that sense of being in something, then what happens? We, we have to keep getting the approval or the confirmations from ourselves. Nobody else is going to say it, then I've got to say it. We've just got to keep proving something. Achieving something. That's stressful, isn't it? And it's also the case that when you refer to that, then one of the big issues for people is in in development in the path is so much of the um, the self-reference is negative. It's like, well, you didn't do this, you're not going to go that. So often, you know, what is really encouraged and what I encourage and think is actually a pretty high practice is is to take refuge. It's supposed to be the beginning, but actually to really sense you're in something that's regarding you with a sense of benevolence and and encouragement rather than just left to the devices of one's own mind <laughs> you know actually coming to a meditation hall coming to a puja with the feeling of now I connect to that now I light the candles, incense, sit there feel the sense of softness, light gentleness, relaxation, spaciousness, ease yeah which is all, you know, actually physically manifest, and go to that, sense that through my skin, through my eyes, through my heart, you know, think it, reflect upon it, take it in, really, you know, make yourself at home, and, and connect to that sense of, of ease, of being, you know, if you don't, so you pick it up, why, why do we do this, you know, why do we sit still and sit in a place where the kind of the sensory contact is soft? It's, it's soft. It's delicate. It's sweet. It's light. Yeah, we can do that. That's conducive because it's, it's okay. even that message to the senses on a sensory level is saying, you know, relax. It's comfortable. There's nothing sharp or harsh, or you've got to you know be too. Nothing alarming you've got to see. You know, you can turn the lights down. You don't have to be on guard. <laughs> Everything's on your side. And try to get that message across to the, to the senses, the external senses. So with some suggestion, one might actually take that into one's heart, you know, to and pick up the tone of that. And then notice, you know, any sense in which you're body relaxes or feels comfortable, just pick up that tone. Do you really know that? Do you take that in? Yeah. So you, you're attuned to that which is in something good. And that's almost your first sense of volition, your first aim or connection is to something that's already good rather than I've got to make something good, I've got to create something, I've got to get somewhere. But there is the good. Ah, oh, where is it? Ah, open up to that. And maybe this is a bit that that isn't always in place for us, because we feel we've got to do it, get there, make it, sort it out, find it. But at the same time, it doesn't happen unless you actually tune in, so there is some quality of, of getting and aiming, but it's aiming to something that's actually being presented and given. That's a sense of refuge taken into the body. So you're tuned to the comfortable, the at home, the blessed, the soft, the radiant, you know. However you feel that in your mind, the images, the ideas of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the inspiration in your body, the quietness, simplicity, the non-intrusive nature of the space. Oh, yeah. Now we could, in, instead of that, attune to the ideas about what we should be, the regrets of the past, the problems we have with other people. We could attune to the kind of agitated or 
or, or tense or whatever experiences. And they've got a lot going for them, those things. They've got a lot of energy in there. And you say, why, why do we do that? You know? So always this is very simple, but why does my mind go to that? Why does my mind go to always finding out what's wrong? And so rarely actually finding out what's right. Isn't that strange? You know, yeah, there's something, something is wrong. Not to say there's nothing wrong, but, but why do I always go to that place when actually it doesn't do me any good? I get wound up, you know, sit here for an hour or so, steaming and stewing, get out feeling, you know, God, I don't feel I've got anywhere, developed anything, learned anything, achieved anything I wanted to, and yet I still keep doing it. It's this sort of, uh, you know, this negative pathology of finding oneself by cutting everything else down. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like the, the complete antithesis of developing a we consciousness. Is, is, you know, rather than finding myself as what I'm in, finding myself as I'm not in that, and he's going to sort her out, and she's got it wrong, and he's that, and, you know, cut everything else out. You know, it's like, then, then I'll be all right. You know, cut out all the grubby bits. And so the mind keeps looking for all the thoughts and getting rid of them. And it's got that kind of inclination to it. And this isn't just a kind of, you know, strange, because it's not just about particular topics or situations. It's, it's almost continual. I've seen this in Sangha life. It's not just about particular difficult people. I mean, I've, there's all kinds of people have been through here. But every one of those people has been criticised. <laughs> has not been good enough. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> it's, it's so easy to do, you know. And yeah, you know, you can say, well, he keeps precepts, he turns up, you know, and she's done this, he's, you know, he doesn't, yeah, it's true, but some little thing. <laughs> Did you see his socks, you know? He turns up late, you know. You know. Wow, Big, yeah, okay, that's not so good, but, you know, and how it's kind of, boom, that becomes really solid and alive, that experience, these other things are going to fade out. It's true, he does turn up late, but he's got a lousy voice. <laughs> but, you know, is that the thing to really... I mean, why do we do that? And how, how uncontrollable it is, seemingly. How it's not something... I'm sure we don't decide to do that, but something pulls it that way. And this is, seems to be like one of the... <coughs> Almost the pathology that comes from being unable to feel one's in a kind of centered in something, you know, big and comfortable. Cutting everything else out. Apart from what's generated through one's own mind or thoughts or heart. So, you know, in there we can create all the perfect beings, can't we? Do you have to go and live with a few of them? You know, the most easiest people to live with are the dead ones. You know, you put them on the shrine, and they're wonderful, Ajahn so-and-so, fabulous, this, that, and the other. You go and you try living with them. You, be <laughs> you, know, you go try and live with Ajahn Mahabur. Or even Ajahn Chah, you know, got some edges and some, uh, you know. So often we compensate for the the absence of of real beings, (coughs) real connection by these fantasies. We live in our own fantasy world of the ideal realm, the ideal situation, the ideal people, and this isn't it. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of pathology there that, that seeks to justify our ability to, to negate by fantasizing about perfection that's never achieved, never found, never discovered. But it just, almost the fantasy of, of, of perfection helps to justify our ability to be negative 
And, um, you know, so one recognizes that ability to be negative, you know, the tremendous, uh, the push towards that. Okay, now this is, what's this? It does me no good. It does nobody else any good. Why does it happen? And it's so deep that, that one of our aims in, in meditation is just, you know, to, to find a place where we can come out of that. So that first um, base of samadhi is a place where you have, you, you've, it's been volitionally generated, you've measured, you've aimed that way, uh, you have a sense of you're in it, you're being in it. You're, you're there in it, you've done it, you've, you've come there. But apart from that, about what you've done and what you've aimed for, there's also a sense of you're in something that feels good. So with uh, you know, two main forms of Buddhist meditation, one says that body and uh, heart, let's say, say body is, is developing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness in the body, so the body becomes something that you're in that feels exceptionally bright, exceptionally comfortable, and you can just something you just relaxes in there. Ah, oh, this is it. Yeah, it's so nice just to be here. And I can give up the the nervousness, the thinking, the the, the differentiating, the criticizing, the aiming. Ah, oh, this is great, you know. You hand over, there's a handing over of the of oneself you know, on, a, on one level of one's thinking personal self to something bigger. And you just can sit in that or relax in that and just take in the ease of that. And this, in a way, is, is, is substituting for the we experience. It's like, instead of the we now being some entity or external group, the we experience is, is the sense of being in something bigger, which is your own body experience which is not the flesh body, but it's a kind of extended energy that you feel yourself within. And it, that is really necessary because there's, there's the place where you can actually hand over. You can say, right, now I can just quiet down and you know, just hand it over to the body, hand it over to the, to the, to the um, samadhi or the concentration experience. And there's a deep relaxing of volition within that. The do it, have it, make it, change it, make it work. So, you know, you begin to experience some peace and some ease. And there's always that touchstone, isn't it, of, of what's more reliable or sustainable or the, what's more constant. So, you know, the, if you like, the measuring stick of, of um, practice is a sense of Recognizing what's inconstant, what's variable, what's unreliable, what's anicca. It doesn't mean it just changes. It also means you can't actually take a stand on it because it keeps shifting. So you think, oh, this is, oh, I want this. This is too wobbly. Um, yeah. I think I was reading this article of Tonisaro's when he says it's like, you know, you're going to sit on a chair which has got isn't properly made, so it's legs are wobbling, you think, I don't want to sit on this thing, you can't really relax. So instead you find a chair that's a bit steadier or firmer. Oh, that's better. And then eventually you probably feel yourself, well look, this could still break, sit on the ground. (laughs) You know, the planet's not going to disappear. So it's that sense of what's more dependable. So you recognize that purely the thinking mind and the the drives, they're, they're they're not dependable. They're not they change, they come and go, they're fickle. The emotions are fickle, they come and go. Effective feelings of the heart. Yeah. So you think, yeah, I don't want to be with this. I want to be something that's a bit more reliable than that. This is what samadhi is about, finding a more reliable basis. Something like that is achieved through also through metta, through kindness and compassion, where you your base is really the uh, heart state, uh, which moves much towards equanimity, which is a very extended basis. Like, 
I can't always feel the sense of positive, but at least I can be I can experience the sense of yeah I can be with that, which is the most most um, constant, if you like, the most reliable state. When it's got the the deepest basis, it's like instead of being on a chair, you're now on the ground um, because there's nothing, you know. And the more you can extend that ability to be with without moving into blame, excitement, um, then the deeper and and fuller one's basis is, and the more you can just kind of relax into that state, into that base. So something, this similar thing is being encouraged in these cultivations, is how you find, through a certain volitional quality, your deepest comfort, personal comfort, through abiding in something that's bigger than one's sense of self. Mm. One's sense of the personal self, one's sense of the do it, you know, core. Do you really recognize the, the need for that, you know, that base? The, the, we call it sometimes the inner tyrant or the inner critic, the thing that's never satisfied with what we do. Not just not satisfied, but actually critical of it. Mm. Feels feels some aversion for it, because it's not until you've until you've actually found the larger space, the bigger space, that you can really feel a sense of feedback, if you like, well-being. That you're not, and you're not uh, having that well-being experience through getting something, making something, hanging on to something. You're getting it through just being in something. Mm. This is the, the base, if you like, or the optimum that we move towards it through meditation, through mind cultivation. So as you, as you practice in mindfulness of the body, then focusing on the breathing, steadying, spreading the awareness through the whole body so you are wide in the basis of experience. And then, you know, just aiming towards that which is most steady, and calm, and then deepening into that, and handing it, handing over to that, just handing over to the groundedness, the steadiness, to the degree to which it's there. So it's always a little bit of a, you know, the volition is necessary because there's always something that's unsteady that you can one can kind of fuss around, or there's always some discomfort somewhere, or something that's not quite right you can pick on, or but you don't actually. You know, you don't. The path is not realised through getting rid of all the uncomfortable bits. You know, it doesn't work that way because there's always there's always an uncomfortable bit. It's realised through actually focusing on the comfortable bit and really enhancing and determining and going to that. You know, the steady bit. Because if if your mind is well, get rid of all the unsteady bits, then I'll be comfortable. Do you realise how unsteady that makes you? Because you're running around finding all the unsteady bits and oh, get rid of that and oh, sort that out and try and why is it like that? That's really unsteady, isn't it? <laughs> so there's a little bit of sense of oh well, just go to this, you know, steady in this, and then enhance it, and then actually a lot of the unsteady bits just sort of ugh, give up, relax, sort themselves out. The body kind of. Sometimes it's a sort of subtle shift and the body settles itself and bits of the mind forgets things or drops things and it comes into that. And that's the meditative process. It's like that. You've got to really go to that uh, place and enhance it and celebrate it. It's really good being in here. It's finding it. But then even the sense of of trying to make more of it, you know, doesn't is not skillful to to 
you know, to, to do that without check. And if, so in the process of Anapanasati, you see, for example, it says, you know, you first you sensitize the mind, thoroughly gladdening the mind, steadying the mind. So it's a sense of when you're really finding that sense of, of, of core, of center, of steadiness, then you gladden it. Oh, this is cheerful. Really enjoy this. Be with this. So that, as it's sometimes said, that not one part of one's being is not actually suffused with this sense of steadiness or calm or ease. You pick it up and you spread it. And then it starts, to, it, then it feeds back. Mm. That's the beauty of, 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 of um, this process. The mind generates a field. You know, rather like a dynamo, you know, you pump away and it's got this current in it and the current feeds back and you've got some light. You, you create a kind of a field. And then, you, then it lasts for a certain period of time and you just sit in that while it, while it lasts. So that's, that's the meditative experience. And you kind of get that, both the immediate feeling of, of the, the sense of contentment or stability, but also an understanding which is, um, goes beyond the immediate feeling into, oh yeah, you, you can move from this to that. That's interesting. And you do it this way. That's interesting. So you, you learn. So it's more than just having a feel-good experience. It's also learning something about how to um, view, what to look at, what to view, how to aim in, and how to um, extend and how to receive. So you get the field experience comes alive. I think this is where it does very much... You know, mirror what you know, is supposed to be the case, or you know, on an external level, we, we feel a sense of. I think is sometimes said in the suttas. Oh, it's great good. It's good fortune for me to live with such beings. You know, these are the arahants say this. Oh, it's very good fortune we can live with such such wonderful beings. Rather than he turns up late, he's got a lousy voice. And <laughs> I'm sure they didn't all have marvellous voices or <laughs> turn up on time. <laughs> but, you know, you get a sense of, you know, you, your, your real uh, impression is retained in, in, that, in those experiences that cause one uplift and, and delight. This is the basis for realization. course it's all generated so this is conditioned we could say it's mundane you know they sound like pejorative statements but this is just the buddha describes it this way this is mundane and conditioned so this isn't this isn't the end this is the base this is if you like we're really on track and what the is this is described some in the in the path of realization is certain kind of big um changes that occur First, uh, in terms of what's called the fetters. And the first is the level of cognitive level where you're very much associated with what you think you are and it's all very personal and internal and this is what I am and I'm doing it. And there's particular sets of systems and rules and things that you, you feel good about or you, you, you feel held together by. Behavioural things. You know, they're not just things that are skillful. They also give you a real feeling of, of uh, worth and value. So you base yourself upon that. And then after a while, actually, you've come to a place where, oh yeah, you, you've come out of that. And you're much more on the sense of, of um, feeling out the sense of, of um, degrees of, of 
of pleasure and displeasure. You know, the sense of stress in the heart, the craving or the irritability. And you're dealing with that. So the other stuff is now past. You're no longer really so motivated around that because that's all already established. So you, that's finished. You know, feeling comfortable. And this, uh, and then at the end of it, you've got this sense of two particular fetters of conceit and restlessness, which are considered to be the, the last. Because all the time throughout this pattern of what affects you, there's a sense of what one wants to be or have and what one doesn't want to be and not have. You know, you get these, this is the basic current of it. I want this and I don't want that. It gets very subtle. I want more samadhi, I don't want this. I want subtler forms of samadhi. I want the arupa, not the rupa, the formless states. You know. So you can experience this in, in samadhi, in where you, your mind, your consciousness doesn't actually pick up any form. It's just extended. And you're in this sense of being in an open, extended state. You think, oh, this is great, more of this, more of this. I don't want this, I don't want this dualistic stuff anymore. I just want to be in this particular space. And so there's still some sense of you know, the ability to, to say, you know, to, be ir- to, to want this and not want that, you know, based upon one's attachment to formlessness or one's attachment to fine form. We want a kind of non-dualist experience rather than the kind of clunky old do the washing up, take the food to the pig farm experience. <laughs> Which, yeah, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't sound beyond this. <laughs> But you see the kind of, you know, this is what you're checking out. Why, why is there, what's resistance here? You know, where's the, where's the... And uh, the two final fetters is conceit, which is the sense of which one's always trying to find oneself. You know, in it, uh, as being this and not that. I'm in this, I'm not in that. I want to be in this state and not in that state. And uh, conceit, conceiving oneself to be anything. So there's still a very much a center. And restlessness is like an anxiety uh, quality, where something is always kind of, where, you know, don't want that to be in here, what should I do about that? It's restlessness. Anxiety-driven. Yeah. These ones are kind of on the edge of, maybe things will go wrong, maybe this will disappear, maybe it won't be so good, maybe, you know, and this is just this kind of restless movement of the mind. It's a boundary experience, really. Something might happen, might come, might not be the way I want it to be. So it, it hasn't actually happened, but we're concerned about something kind of coming in on us. And the conceit is a sense of really trying to hold on to a center. Uh, and this is, actually becomes the focus in in realizations in you know insight realizations is is almost like the sense of this particular tension to hold and sustain and protect and not be to have and to continue to be um, and you can feel a kind of a tension in that and it's really coming to that place and handing it over The gesture of handing it over, the gesture of something in just kind of relaxes or releases and says, you know, let it be the way it is. I don't have to hold or know or be anything. Uh, when this is done in the experience of meditation, of course, it's, it's, quite, it's very refined. You know, we get attracted by um, subtle forms of pleasure, lights, radiances, feelings if you're about to have some big breakthrough, knowledge, vision, um, insights, also things that we feel ourselves, um, you know, empowered by. You're really getting there, you got this, and then you got this, and, and you can see this happening. And then you get, you want to defend it. Like, um, so certainly in, in Sangha life, you, you experience this a lot. People do have realizations, and they, they get very kind of you know, dogmatic about it. This is it, I've got it. Right, this is nothing else. And then, 
you know, don't want any other influences to affect it. You know, you're kind of worried about the purity of the Sangha. As if, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, their ability to to uh, trust, relinquish, let go, is the is uh, the realization experience. You know, we've done what we can. We've uh, put forth what we could. We've extended what we can. As even the Buddha, you know, during his time, sang was pretty impure. But he didn't worry. He didn't say, "Well, you know, got to keep." What's going to happen in the future? He said, well, I've done what I can, hand it over, let it be the way it is. And sooner or later it would decline. It's like that. But uh, handing it over. Says, you know, the Buddha saying, well, sooner or later the Dharma will die out. That's the way it goes. It's like that. People won't understand or practice it like that without uh, obviously without any suffering you know not not feeling fed up or wasted my time because <laughs> it's somehow bigger uh, realization is open to something that's bigger than any kind of form of the manifest mm. and it, this is in a way you know this is called very high realizations but just saying, you know, right at the, the kind of at the level at where everyone's at, there's always, you know, what's manifest. And within that, we can see the, the faults and the blemishes, either internally in ourselves or externally. This is just the, the thing I want to keep coming back to. If you keep worrying about the manifest, about seeing, you know, the errors in it and the mistakes in it, then you don't actually open beyond it. The manifest is always going to be like this. But your manifestation is to be free from worry, doubt, agitation, blame, criticism, aversion, despair, suffering. That's that's it, isn't it? You know, that's all the Buddha ever wanted. He didn't say, I want you, to, I want you guys to set something up. I want it to last forever. He said, no. He said, all I want you to do is stop suffering. If it doesn't last for more than a decade, that's fine. If it's helped five people, that's fine. If it's helped one person, that's fine. <laughs> you know, when he, when he started his uh, teaching, he said, nobody's going to understand this. He thought, well, you know, maybe Uddha could understand it, perhaps. One person. I'll go and do it for him. Oh, he's dead. Okay, Alamra, Kalam, oh, no, he's gone too. And then, what are those five people who used to hang out? They were going to do it for their sake, I suppose. So there's five people. I go and do it. Didn't, you know, I'm going to set something up to last for eternity. Just that kind of sense of, of um, you know, we're not looking for um, big things on the manifest plane, but to be able to operate purely and brightly from our own sense of well-being and benevolence and emphasize that and dwell in it for our own welfare. And of course, this is naturally going to be for the welfare of those who can pick it up. I think this is really a celebration because you're not asked to, to cure the whole world, sort everybody else out, turn out a whole group of perfected monks and nuns and lay people are all in line, smoothed hair, slicked down, head shaved, socks upright <laughs> all the time, eternally, <laughs> punctual, <laughs> polite. <laughs> Just, you know, to get beings to suffer a little less <laughs> is, is, a, is a wonderful aim, you know. And then there may be I mean, I could suffer a little less by making less of a headache out of it. <laughs> Handing it over to, to the, the Dhamma, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and uh, 
the, the line of practice. I think this is something that we feel a sense of, oh yeah, it's not all up to me then. Oh, oh yeah, I can rest in this. Rather than rest in the, you know, the fault, the blemished manifestations, I can, rec- I can rest in the beautiful aspiration body uh, of, uh, of human life, of human beings. That's worth celebrating. Anyone? <clears throat> mm-hmm.